Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 on your dial. I'm Chloe, um, and um, Jacob is also uh, back here in the studio presenting the show this morning. Well, we're both back here, actually, because we're both in isolation. (laughs) Yes, and before we get started, um, we'd just like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the rightful sovereign owners of the land on which we live work and organize. Uh, They never ceded sovereignty and the colonization of their land continues to this day. And we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And as socialists, we pledge to actively support decolonization and any other campaigns led by Indigenous Australians. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And before we start off with our usual uh, usual um, news stories this morning, I'd just like to also acknowledge the wonderful um, volunteers at 3CR, um, especially Annie and Ella for panelling last week, and also Sue and Leo, who came in to replace Jacob and I last week. We were both pretty sick with COVID, um, so we're really grateful to 3CR for helping out and um, yeah, doing such a good job. I was listening in uh, while I was sick at home. Um, <clears throat> Jacob, did you want to... Start off the first um, news headline. Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll start this off. This is um, a bit of a positive kind of news story. Mm. Now, this is, I mean, it's not like a, per- I mean, a bit of a disclaiming. I mean, this is not like a perfect sort of solution in any case. And, and we don't want to give the idea that this is, we don't want to give any sort of justification uh, to, to our government's abhorrent policies. But it is a welcome development that, um, the Morrison government has agreed to the New Zealand refugee resettlement deal within um, with, with Australia, and in fact, this is actually happening. Um, and in fact, um, it, it is um, yeah, it, it basically means that a number of refugees who are currently kind of detained in on on short kind of in detention centres are going to be released over the X number of kind of years. <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'm not sure, yeah, how, what the particularities of everything in terms of the deal. Um, and I'm sure, you know, there are, you know, caveats. But at the end of the day, um, refugees are going to be released. And especially for refugees who have spent so long languishing in detention, mm. uh, this is a very welcome development. And I also think that, you know, credit has to be placed on the efforts of refugee rights activists over the years. And I think, you know, they have just as much credit for this happening. And, you know, and I think, you know, obviously, I think, as I was sort of saying, this is clearly not a kind of perfect solution. And really, you know, the government should be taking response. The Morrison government should be taking responsibility and actually agreeing to settle in these refugees and actually abolishing the abhorrent system of mandatory detention. (laughs) Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, so, so basically, just for listeners who haven't, because this is, um, 
a, a new development. Under this deal, refugees in Nauru, um, which is where um, one of the places that the Australian government have been uh, detaining refugees indefinitely. So some some from Nauru um, and PNG are already in Australia, and so they are the ones that will be eligible f- to be resettled in New Zealand. And this offer by New Zealand has been, um, you know, it's just been sitting on the table for years. Um, so those who are settled in New Zealand will then be, a- they might be, well, they'll be able to return to Australia. And there are about 40 people in Nauru who will be eligible, and many, many are already you know, they're, they're already have started processes to, to go to the U.S. or, or Canada. Um, but what this deal means is that more than 100 refugees in Australia will make up the... And I'm just reading from the Refugee Action Collective for anyone who wants more information. Um, and we'll also be writing a, an, an article in Green Left. But it means that more than 100 refugees in Australia will make up the 150 who will go to New Zealand over the next year. Um, and that's, you know, that is very good news for um, the 51 people who were transferred from PNG and Nauru who are still um, imprisoned in the Park Hotel and other detention centres in Australia. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I agree, Jacob, this is a victory for refugees and, and the movement, this this news, it does show the pressure is working and, you know, the power of protests inside the detention centres, the the actions and protests, the ongoing um, uh, actions, you know, on, uh, from the outside and everyone who's involved in the ongoing struggle to free refugees. But, you know, I mean, it has, you know, and we show our solidarity to those refugees um, who have had years of their lives taken from them, um, some over 10 years um, and they're finally, you know, they will win their freedom. But, you know, after choosing to detain and punish innocent refugees indefinitely, um, you know, driven some to be incredibly sick, um, you know, with, that we won the right to have them medevaced here. Um, yeah, and, and then imprisoning them off um, on detention camps. I mean, they, they really should have... It is the responsibility of this government to, um, you know... Th- I mean, they came here looking for safety and they really should have... We would have liked to have seen them um, be resettled here in the community. Um, and the fact that the government, the Morrison government and previous governments before refused to grant them permanent visas is... Um, is, is abhorrent, and we will continue to keep fighting for the rights of refugees. Mm. And actually, one of the kind of interesting kind of things as well, I mean, we should also kind of probably condemn the government actually for another aspect of this, and why is it um, that they didn't accept this deal kind of sooner? Mm. Um, like, you know, that's actually the... Because New Zealand has actually been making this <laughs> offer for kind of well, several strategy, years. I'd say. Um, yeah, there's probably that, there's probably that mm. element as well. But it's also like, you know, at the end of the day, it just actually what this reflects is the nature of our politicians is that they literally just play with human lives yeah. um, for their own sort of political kind of gain. And the yeah, at the end of the day, you know, the most sort of liberal kind of people at the time, you know, argued that, you know, well, maybe the Morrison government should accept this deal because it doesn't undermine their existing sort of policy. Uh, that is obviously the existing policy is absolutely abhorrent, but it's... Yeah, and it's like what's quite striking is a lot of the um, a lot of the politicians um, who have been quoted um, in in this stuff on this recent kind of development. You know, they basically wanted to assure the public that you know this won't um, this doesn't make bring any sort of changes to 
to the um to the Morrison government sort of um boat turnbacks and yeah I think there's that's I think the the main I think we should also be condemning the government for the fact that they took so long to accept this deal and and also the, this agreement does exclude the refu- some of the refugees and asylum seekers in PNG um and these are refugees that have suffered um immense torture um so you know there is no excuse um for the government to exclude them. Um, they were illegally sent to Manus Island. Um, so, yeah, we... Yeah, we, I mean, and if, if a Labour government does come into power, um, you know, we will we will keep putting pressure on them um, to free all refugees and give them permanent protection, but also grant them um, family reunion rights. Some of them haven't seen their families in over 10 years. So, um, welcome news, but it, it, the, the struggle, um, the fight... Um, for refugee rights isn't over. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. When disaster hits a group of islands scattered around the ocean like Tonga, it is evident how the responses and actions can be difficult for these multitude of uh, beings have no idea what to do, plus no equipment or tools to work with. And the impact will show on everything, physically, mentally, financially, and people due to being uninformed and unequipped. So maybe this is, um, this is a question for the Tongan government. How can you manage situation like this better in the future? Subscribe to 3CR, informed, articulate and alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Listening to Green Left 
um, Radio, and on the line, um, we are very happy to um, to have Dick Nichols um, all the way here from Barcelona, where um, we've um, hooked him in from Barcelona. He is uh, the European correspondent for Green Left, and one of the things that we've been doing in Green Left is we have been printing some of the kind of different sort of left-wing kind of perspectives on that have kind of been put forward in response to Russians' invasion of Ukraine um, from the broad left parties with institutional um, positions in Parliament um, to the revolutionary left. Um, So, yeah, good morning, Dick. Uh, Good morning to you. All right. Um, So you wrote in your article um, on March uh, 3rd that when it comes to perspectives on Russia's invasion amongst the left within Europe, there was generally kind of united agreement, I guess, on these three kind of basic points. Uh, The demand for immediate withdrawal of um, Russian forces, emphasis on the role of the expansion um, on, of the expansion of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, as the underlying driver of the crisis and cause more or less detailed for de-escalation dialogue and a negotiated solution along the lines of the 2014 and 2015 mixed accords. However, you point out that this broad unity um, takes place in the context, you know, quoting you in your article, uh, in the context of an offensive by its enemies at home. Can you elaborate on what this has meant amongst, for debates amongst the left responding to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I think what we have to get clear is that there are the the left, all all components of the left, is, is torn between two very powerful pressures. Uh, one is to resist militarisation, militarism, uh, NATO, and the expansion of NATO on the one hand, um, and the and the other is to actually give support to the Ukrainians because it's a very small part of the left that thinks that uh, you know the, the story of Russia running a special uh, military operation to you know denazify Ukraine is is remotely believable so you, you they're torn, the the left is torn between these two pressures now of course the uh, establishment parties and this goes right through to the social democracy and the greens and not all the greens but certainly the greens that are in power so for example in Germany where they're in coalition with the social democracy um for them, helping the Ukraine and strengthening NATO uh, is all the same thing. Uh, we strengthen NATO, and that's what they're doing. They're using, in a sort of obscene way, they're using the Ukrainian crisis uh, to boost uh, military expenditure, to uh, to strengthen and tighten up their relationship between each, each other, uh, to construct Europe more and more as an imperialist power with armies of its own, all the sort of things you would expect them to use a crisis for, they're doing. Um, then so the left parties then split on, and they fell into a bit of, some of the parties fell into this trap, whereby they couldn't separate out the question of support for the Ukraine, including military support and including arms, which is what they need to actually maintain their resistance, um, from the question of NATO. So in what you get is a, a broad span of positions um, which run from a very uh, sort of rather neutral and useless pacifism, which is, oh, we just want peace, um, which is very irritating to the uh, Ukrainians here. You can imagine why. Um, 
through to, oh, well, we just have to accept an, uh, an increase in defence expenditure. So the Swedish Left Party, for example, um, which is, supports the Social Democratic government in Sweden from the outside, uh, is, is supporting an increase in the defence budget. Um, but as I say, these two things quite separately. You can argue uh, that the Ukrainians need arms just as the Kurds needed arms and they needed the support of the United States Air Force um, without that entailing you supporting any of the um, uh, military alliances in which the United States is involved. Uh, thanks, uh, Dick. It's Chloe here also on the call. Um, you know, one of the, the things about the events in the in the is the well, one of the things we've noticed is actually the level of universal condemnation by the traditional the traditional right, um, and you know it's what we often term you know, liberal capitalist parties of Russia of Russia's invasions. Um, but the majority of the Western capitalist world, regardless of their political orientation, have uh, gone ahead and condemned Russia's actions. Um, and there are, you know, obvious political differences between the left, the right, and the center on the response. Um, Dick, how do you think this dynamic has influenced the debate that is being had on the left in um, Europe? You did touch on it there, but, you know, when it comes to responding to Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. Well, I think it's, it's it follows on from the answer I gave to the first question that... Mm. Uh, if you react to what has happened in Ukraine, if, if the left parties react by saying, well, the right says that, the liberal parties say that, the pro-capitalist parties say that, we say the opposite, then, then you end up in a, in a very bad position, it seems to me, which is, you know, some, some parties here are actually opposed to, um, opposed to sending arms to the Ukraine. It just makes matters worse. Uh, so, for example, the French, uh, France Insoumise, um, uh, French, uh, France Unbowed, which is the party of the main left candidate in the French, uh, election, French presidential elections, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, is opposed to any sort of, um, arming of the Ukrainians. And, and the, you understand the reaction because the arming of the Ukrainians by the NATO powers is presented as a NATO present. This is a NATO present uh, to the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians are all every day, uh, Zelensky appear, appears on television here, demanding more arms. Um, for example, they know they're not going to get a no-fly zone because a no-fly zone will be a direct provocation uh, to the Russians. So what they want is surface-to-air missiles uh, to try and uh, break to some degree, uh, the Russian domination of, air, of, air, of airspace. Um, so you get a, a variety of reactions to that from uh, the, ver the various left parties. Um, some saying we cannot ever support an increase in arms going to, in armament, arming any country because this is just adds to militarism, uh, which I think is a very bad position because it sort of deals you out of the actually having uh, any sort of influence and actually having any sort of um, discussion with the Ukrainian people themselves. Um, so that's that's where we're at. Uh, and there's, of course, an ongoing debate between all, all the left parties about uh, what position to come to. And I, I think that there's just today a, there's a campaign for a European-wide uh, support for Ukraine from the left, 
which seems to me very good, which, you know, hits all the right points, uh, right for the Ukrainians to get uh, whatever support they need, both, you know, defensive weaponry, lethal weaponry, uh, but it all covers all the other issues, refugees, of course, um, and an end to NATO. That is to say, it makes the point, um, if there had not been this permanent encroachment uh, and expansion of NATO, even though that was, you know, not... That was not unwelcome in, the, in in Eastern Europe, where the attitude was that the main threat was coming from Russia. Um, this campaign, this 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 actual new campaign that's starting up, seems to me to have finally sorted out where the left should be as a separate, distinct force from all the other parties of the right. Hmm. And actually, that gets me, I guess, into the kind of next question I was going to ask, except I'm going to sort of reframe it a bit in terms of the context of some of the things you're kind of bringing up. But I guess. You've kind of brought up some of the different kind of actions um, that parties, I guess, on the broad left um, within Europe that have institutional positions within Parliament, which is actually a very different context from, you know, where we're coming from in, say, Australia, where, you know, the left actually doesn't really have any institutional positions, regardless of whether they're, you know, reformist, um, certainly not revolutionary or anything, but it's like... Yeah, we've, we're, we're in a context where the Australia, where, where the Australian left actually doesn't have the, I guess, those institutional positions. And I guess I want to hear some of your analysis on some of those actions which you've alluded to that parties have taken. But I also want to guess hear your position, your perspective in the context of what you ended up with, um, what you ended your last point with there. You know, this question of building an independent sort of position on the left. Is there, are there actually Parties um, who have at, in, who have institutional positions in Parliament who have actually put forward positions that are you know actually independent of the kind of liberal capitalist sort of thing because I guess yeah in terms of the question we were sort of asking for because there's obviously this universal condemnation of Russia's actions it does in some sense create a pressure where it's actually almost a, almost a harder struggle for the left to build an independent position from the right on some of this stuff. But also sometimes there's also the other era, which is the left wants to build, in, um, attempts to build an independent position by almost having the completely contrary position, which is I, i.e. The, the more minority position, which is basically almost being apologic, um, uh, apologist for Russia's actions. So, yeah, I guess I want to hear some of your um, perspectives on some of those, um, those dynamics. Well- well, I think what, happened, what had to happen before we got to this point was that the Western European left had to listen to the Ukrainians and had to listen to the Russian, resisted the Russian peace movement, uh, especially the feminist movement in Russia, which is actually the movement that is doing most against militarism and most against the war, um, feminist uh, anti-war resistance. Uh, and they had to listen to what the positions were um, of the Ukrainian left, which is small, um, and but there is a new Ukrainian left in. I think the main the main organisation is called Social Movement. Well, it is it's called Social Movement, and they have been a sort of friendly polemic for about a month now, and with some forces on the uh, on the European left, or the Western European left. For example, there was a, a sharp phone call which I and heard about by accident, uh, between Podemos in Spain uh, and the uh, and social movement in the Ukraine, because Podemos in Spain has a, pas- a purely pacifist position. Um, and the purely pacifist is, position was, uh, we are going to mobilise people against not increasing militarism, 
not sending arms to the uh, increasing arms to the Ukraine. And they're in the government. They're the minor party in the government. Whereas, of course, the, you know, the social movement, you can imagine, the social movement, they're involved in the front line. They've got people out there risking their lives. Uh, they're on, you know, they're in, in, in war. Um, they're saying, no, you can, this is an impossible position. And all that means is that the left will be seen from here uh, by all ordinary people. We're not talking about, you know, fascist or neo-Nazi minorities. We're talking about the mass of ordinary people, ordinary working people who are volunteering uh, or, or are being called up uh, to resist this invasion. Uh, what, what we need is support. What we need is solidarity. Uh, and so I think getting that voice coming through from the, the left in Ukraine, from social movement and other forces, has been very instrumental in finally arriving at this position, um, which is only incipient. It's just beginning of a left uh, peace movement, pan-European peace movement. But the basis for this has to be really an agreement between or agreement or a, a consensus of some kind between the Russian left and the Russian peace movement uh, and the Ukrainians. And then we can all come in from the rest of Europe in, in solidarity with that. Um, and that's taken some time to, to work through. And I mean, if you can think of one benefit from this hideous war, it's that, oh, Eastern Europe, Europe exists. This is, I'm speaking here from Spain, right? I'm from, from, from Western Europe. Oh, there's a left there. Oh, we've got to relate to them. Oh, we've got to find out what they think. And that's, that's been a step forward. Hmm. And actually, that actually, instead of actually going into, I guess, the sort of next question, um, I thought what you kind of raised there is actually quite interesting because I guess in terms of the context of, I guess, this debate, and in fact, in fact, you know, for both me and Chloe, I think we're actually kind of learning quite a lot in terms of this kind of discussion because I guess one of the things, and I, I'm sure for a lot of people on the Australian left um, who are listening to this program, I think, you know, often our... I guess, kind of common kind of presumptions is we generally tend to sort of listen to the voices, obviously, of the Western sort of European left because of um, obviously Western Europe's kind of position in in world kind of capitalist politics. They, yeah, their voices are often most kind of emphasised um, more than others. And I guess you bring up things about, you know, the Russian sort of left, um, the Ukrainian left, etc. And I guess what... I guess I want to sort of hear what are some of the positions that, you know, the Eastern European left have sort of taken um, in response to this invasion and, you know, how do they and how do some of those actual positions differ from in more detail, even though you've alluded to earlier, um, from from what is the traditional kind of Western European left? Because, yeah, there is obviously a whole perspective, um, especially since Eastern Europe has its own complex sort of history with the fall of the Soviet Union and, you know, the fact that a lot of those countries were actually uh, subnotated to the Soviet Union at one point. Yeah, what are some of those, how did that those dynamics, and especially in terms of Russia's own sort of um, expansionist sort of ambitions in the region? Yes, I th- you've, uh, you've raised a huge pile of questions there in the form of one question. I think, I mean, obviously there's a Eastern European uh, post-Stalinist revolutionary left that is developing. It's not strong. It's strong. It's not. It's got representation in some parliaments, uh, in the Slovenian parliament, and I think in the Croatian parliament, but don't hold me to that. Um, but it's 
the, the, the major characteristic, and there's some, some exceptions to all of this, so I, I just take me, this is a sort of rough generalisation. Um, the major characteristic is they've got to reframe the language in the left in such a way that it doesn't sound like the old Stalinist, so-called inverted commas communist left. So what we're talking about is a new left. And, of course, there's dangers involved in that, which is that you, uh, you know, adapt to... Uh, you know, liberal uh, liberal notions. You downplay, uh, maybe downplay class struggle uh, too much. But you know, we can't go into that in detail here. Um, but the the fundamental common characteristic, I think, of the Poles, the Slovenian left, um, the Bulgarian left, all of these countries which were former countries of the former so you know countries of the former Soviet bloc, is an understanding that. The Ukrainians are on the front line, and they've got to be supported. Um, and they can understand, of course, there's a specific history of the Ukraine. Of course, there is all the, you know, the horrors of the Second World War, where the most Jews that were killed in the uh, Holocaust came from the Ukraine. All of this, which of course is used by Putin and and, and Putin supporters, uh, and the Communist Party of the of the Russian Federation too. Um, but these, this new left uh, shares that position, you know, shares the position that this is critical and that uh, the Ukrainians have, have, have to be supported. Um, so there's some interesting side debates here, which we can't, as I say, we can't go into in any sort of detail. But one is from the Western left, you have this proposal. Uh, well, the solution is that Ukraine be neutral. And you get an interesting response to that which is understandable, which is, I know, some comrades from social movements say, well, who are you to dictate whether we should be neutral or not? We actually happen to think we should be neutral, but that shouldn't be decided um, by other forces. Uh, you know, we were in favour of dissolving, dissolving uh, you know, neutrality in the short term and dissolving NATO, dissolving all the blocks and having people-to-people solidarity and the end of military alliances, and, but that's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, so you ha- these are the sort of de- that's an interesting debate that comes up. Um, who, you know, very sensitive, correctly sensitive uh, to the Western left saying, oh well, you should be neutral. Uh, Finland is neutral. Sweden is neutral. You, sh- you should be neutral. Um, not that they want to join NATO. Uh, it's just a question of democratic rights. What's the, de- the democratic right of the Ukrainians to decide uh, their own future and their own alliances? And I guess, um, I guess that, um, interesting enough, I'll make just one quick comment there because, um, yeah, this a whole question around, um, you, and you're probably interested in here, um, this whole question of Ukraine being neutral, that has actually been, you know, that has actually been a bit of a discussion in some of the anti-war organising that has actually happened in Australia where, you know, there was, um, there was an experience at one meeting I had where, you know, someone, um, you know, basically tried to make an argument that we should make one of the demands of the rally be Ukraine be neutral. And I was sort of like, you know, my intervention at that point was actually, no, that I don't think that's actually the right kind of frame of mind. Like, why a, the country is literally, Ukraine is literally being invaded right now. And we're, we're supposed to say that Ukraine, you should be neutral. Um, 
um, it's almost like it's almost like comes off as like a deranged. For, I, I think in my view, it almost comes off as a bit of a form of victim blaming. Um, I.e., Ukraine um, Ukraine's been invaded by Russia because uh, they wanted to join NATO. Now, obviously, you know, you know, there's obviously there's there's mm-hmm. obviously there is you know particular po- political problems with you know the established you know part uh, the estab- you know this those who are in power in Ukraine in terms of some of their positions on this mm-hmm. on this question. But it's you know in the context of you know, Ukraine being invaded, you know, it's it's not, yeah, it's definitely not a good thing for those on the outside to be no. basically putting, imposing that sort of position no, onto Ukraine. And that's right. And, and this this new platform, which I mentioned, this new pan-European platform in formation, they don't raise that. That demand does, doesn't appear. Um, so they obviously had a big discussion about that and, and they left, left it out. Just one other point, I'll just in answer to your previous question, which I point I forgot to make, um, it's very much worth reading in the latest Green Left the declaration of uh, social movement in relation to the closing down of 11 left parties in the Ukraine uh, by the government. The government's closed down 11 parties. Some of these are very... Well, it doesn't matter whether they're small or not. They've got democratic rights. Uh, and the social movement has come out and said, well, it's these parties, some of these parties are actually, you know, aligned with Russia. They're fragments of the old Ukrainian Communist Party. Um, and in, in a war situation, they, they operate basically as a fifth column. Uh, but that's got to be proven. That's got to be proven in court. It's not up for the government to just ban parties like that. And it's a very good statement, in my opinion, because it balances, it defends the democratic right of opinion and organisation, but it obviously makes it clear, you know, that this is limited in a war situation. Um, The banning of these parties, of course, is being used by pro-Moscow. Um, and pro-Putin forces to say, well, here they are, the Liberal West, look at them. You know, as soon as the things start, uh, they start banning people. Uh, and there's, a, there's an, an element of truth in that because here we have this ban on all Russian uh, information, all Russian information services here. Uh, you can't find anything out about what the, the Russian official Russian point of view is. Um, because that's just enemy propaganda. Oh, well, enemy propaganda, we keep it out. You know, We don't trust anybody to think for themselves about any of this. Um, but as I say, I recommend, that, uh, I recommend that statement as a very mature statement of people who are on the front line of a war and yet they're still thinking clearly about the question of democratic rights for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, we're getting. Um. I was thinking we we could um do a bit of a conclusion. Um. Conclude. I guess this kind of interview. But I guess a concluding question. I sort of felt. Um. That I guess should be asked. And I guess you've kind of alluded to it in terms of like to tie in all, all the sort of different kind of trends that you've sort of brought up. Um. I kind of want to hear. I guess. I guess in terms of like hear your some of your perspectives i guess on the kind of way forward in terms of some of these kind of contradictions because you've pointed out that i guess in terms of developing i guess uh, uh, a better european left united sort of european left position um you know the western european left um has to be out um has to listen to the east in a certain uh, um in that certain respect but i guess yeah what would you know in a sense 
a dynamic that actually unite, you know, a, a position that sort of unites, you know, all the different sections of the Western European left with those of the Eastern European left. What do you think is sort of like, in terms of your perspective, a kind of way forward in terms of this, I guess, current sort of um, crisis and situation? Well, let me just counsel against any easy solutions here uh, because we're in for a, a, a wave of right-wing reactionary nationalist sentiment across the whole of Europe and a wave of militarism increase in defence expenditure. They, you know, the, the other, those people are the enemy. Um, it's going to, it feels already feels like pre-World War One here. And I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but that's the way that people talk about the Russians and, and don't bother to make any sort of different differentiation between, um, the oligarchy on the, and the, and the, those in power, the elites, uh, and, and, and the mass of Russian people, even though all, all the polls are showing that the, you know, Putin has majority support so far, so far, but there's a, the, there's an interesting growth in, in the, in opposition to the war, especially amongst the young people. The interesting, the interesting statistic is, the greatest opposition to the war is coming from young people and they don't cop the way the older, um, older generations cop, you know, all this language about where anti-fascism, all the language that came from the Second World War or the Great Patriotic War, as it's called in Russia. So I think this, the way forward will be an actual process of resisting this wave of reaction, which will come, which is already coming, um, th then on the basis of the resistance to the war inside Russia, on the basis of supporting the Ukrainians, and on the basis of opposing all this nationalism, which is also in the Ukraine. I mean, you read some of the stuff that comes out of the Ukraine, they just talk about the Russians as, as kind of beast people. Um, all of this filth is going to have to be lived through, uh, and if the, Euro the European left can collaborate, create a movement that's strong enough, um, and act in, with clear solidarity, coordinated solidarity campaigns and pro-peace campaigns against uh, military alliances like NATO, well, against NATO, um, that will be the basis. Uh, on which we go forward. And though it's going to be horrible in, in the short and medium term, just talking to young people from the different European countries, which you do, which I do, um, you know that there's a basis there for that. There's an actual human social basis uh, for coming out of this horrible situation. But as I say, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. Well, thank you very much um, for that, Dick. And I, yeah, I guess it's um, that task. We still we also have that task in um, in Australia right now, although of obviously of a different context, um, especially in because of um, you know there is this real push for militarism from the uh, Morrison government, but it's not necessarily in response to more um, to the actions of, of of Russia, although they are trying to conveniently take advantage of it. But it's in response to this obviously this whole issue of China, which is um, clearly, you know, basically going to be a huge, massive source of reaction uh, for all the kind of Western sort of capitalist parties. And I think, yeah, as for the left, it's going to be very important that we build um, opposition to this, and it is going to be a very challenging road for us. And I think, yeah, there's all these challenges are going to happen in, in Europe as well. 
So, yeah. Um, thank you very much, um, Dick. Oh, well, I look forward, just one last note, just to say goodbye, but I look forward to Socialist Alliance doing a good, strong anti-Kaki uh, election uh, campaign and against all this filth, and I'm sure you will. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dick. Thank you, Dick. <clears throat> Bye-bye. All right. We were just um, speaking to um, Dick Nichols, the European correspondent for um, for Green Left, um, or talking to him all the way from um, he was all the way in um, Barcelona. Um, which um, and um, yeah, we just had a very insightful and informative discussion on some of the different kind of positions that the left has um, adopted in um, in um, Europe. So yep, um, I in in response to Russians' invasion of Ukraine. All right. Well, um, I'm just going to um, you'll um, I'll, I think um, for now we'll we'll, have, we'll take a bit of a breather and maybe we'll play a bit of a, a a song before we go on to our next interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. I'm going to play "Breathe In, Breathe Out" by Thelma Plum.
This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 855 AM, and um, we're very happy to have our second guests on the program. Um, we have Joshua Tavares um, on the line here, who is a resident at the Collingwood Public Housing Estate, who is part of a campaign to destroy stop the destruction of the green open space in within the um, the public housing state at the hands of um, the state government. So, good morning, Joshua. Oh, sorry. Good morning, Joshua. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yep, all good. Just forgot to press the button, so it's all good. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, um, I guess, um, start. I've given you a bit of an introduction, and I guess, what can you tell, um, what can you tell us listeners, um, tell our listeners about the state government sort of plans? And I guess what has been sort of this rationale of, you know, what what is exactly they're being trying to push and you've kind of alluded to in some of the campaign material that you've been putting out? So the, the state government, as part of the big build, um, which is an initiative to a lot of infrastructure, um, to upgrade a lot of infrastructure, so, you, you know, level crossings, and some of it's some good work, some of it actually isn't. So on the public housing, they want to wind down public housing and wind up social housing and affordable housing. Um, but they're using public housing land to wind up social housing and affordable housing. And I don't know if people are aware of the power, I mean, not the power, the, the um, pay structure that is different. So at, in public housing, your, your tenature... Um, it's secure, and you only pay a third of what you earn, or twenty-five percent. Sorry, where with social housing and affordable housing, it's up to eighty percent. Um, but that's not guaranteed as well, and you're not guaranteed to be a tenant, so you don't have the security in where you live or anything. Um, so, and there's, there's so in Collingwood. Collingwood is the most open-air deficient space within Victoria, within Melbourne itself. 0.3 open-air space. The medium in Melbourne is at about 13 14%. Um, Clifton Hill is up at 24% because of the parklands and everything around the river. So we're asking the state government, why are we choosing Collingwood? Why are we choosing Collingwood? Why are we choosing the housing estate to do more social housing when they've got gas works up the road, the old gas works site, when they've got, um, they may, they've acquired land along, um, Alexander Parade. Why aren't they using that space? The old police radio station as well, which is just a, 
adjacent to the housing estate in Collingwood. Mm. Was that? Did I did I say everything? Yeah, and also, uh, like you know, we've been we, we haven't been able for the last two years able to use our assets, able to use our open airspace, um, and they're you know due to COVID and stuff. And we're still we're still being locked out of our assets, like the underground car park and other community centres on the estate. So they're imposing this build that's going to take potentially two years, maybe four years, with the supply chain, without implementing any other spaces for us to, you know, use. And our green space is like not big enough to. We, there's three thousand to five thousand people that live on the housing estate. Um, they're going to put another 500 people on top without making sure amenities can sustain the extra people, especially, like, <clears throat> maintenance that I not even maintain. We've got 50, um, 50 dwellings that are dormant on the estate. So why are we adding more housing to an estate where there's a third of the stock in which they're going to propose to build dormant? Yeah, um, thanks, Josh. It's, it's Chloe here also on the call. Um, yeah, uh, it's very inspiring, the, the campaign, and thank you for fighting um, for the right to public housing. It is, um, it is very concerning uh, what the state government um, is trying to do. Um, you know, people mm-hmm. are at risk of becoming homeless, especially, you know, with the mm-hmm. rising cost of um, living at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, uh, Josh, what can you tell us about, you know, I mean, while this is all going on, um, mm-hmm. And the campaign, you know, hopefully will pick up more steam. What has been the response of some of the residents and the broader community to this issue? The, they don't really know what is happening when you, oh, they're going to build social housing. They're like, oh, we need more housing. That's good. But they don't actually understand what that entails. So it sounds good, but in actuality, it isn't. It isn't. And when local residents find out, Oh wait, they it you're not secured housing, you're paying it's meant to be affordable but it's eighty percent of market value and eighty percent of you know, Collingwood is like you you're paying anywhere from six hundred to eight hundred dollars a week for a place that's five eighty five hundred and eighty oh, you know, about five hundred and eighty bucks that low income people are meant to be paying for rent, how is that affordable? Who, how is that accessible? Um, and once people find out the reality of it, they're like, hey, this isn't cool. Um, mm. Yeah, so most most local residents um, aren't, aren't happy about it. Mm. And In the border community. And I guess... Um, I guess what can you tell us, I guess, about um, about the kind of campaign that, I guess, has kind of developed in response? And, I guess, what can you tell us about some of the demands that are going um, getting, are being put forward to the government on this on this issue? Well, so I guess the demands are... I don't know if people are aware there's... Um, I run and curate the Collingwood Underground Roller Disco, which happens in the underground car park. Um, I know listeners... What potentially know Izzy Brown that does a lot of stuff mm-hmm. in the underground park as well. And my late father has a gym in that space, which is a black queer specific gym. Um, and the, the state government, um, 
doesn't really care about our initiatives. I don't really care what what community grassroots um, programs are running. They just care about um, you know the aesthetics of how it looks in terms of you know what. Sorry, what was your question again? Oh, more more the question about, yeah, tell us a bit about the campaign um, that has developed in response and also some of the demands that you are putting forward. So the the campaign is saying, no, we don't want to build um, on on our land, on public housing land. Yes, we want more public housing. Yes, we want um, more social housing, but not here. Um, Use your other assets. Our demand is somewhere else. If this bill does go ahead, we're demanding for um, proper infrastructure to be spent on the estate and that, you know, the estate looks as a whole, it's taken care of as a whole and not, okay, they've got this new um, set of buildings, which makes the old set of buildings look unwanted because they're not taking care of their public, public housing stock. Hmm. Um, oh. Okay, um, and I guess yeah, I think that's all. That's all very good, um, Joshua. And I guess um, in terms of like um, because um, we we're, we're running a bit out of time, I guess for the um, yes, interview, no, right. I'd like to see if you have any. Um, I'd like to hear from any kind of concluding comments, but also hear um, like for, for especially uh, like how how can listeners and um, support um, this campaign that um, that yes. has developed, and you know how can we yeah how can we show our solidarity. So we've got a call to action. We're doing a um, a little barbecue. We're playing some music every Friday from four to seven um, every week. But from the eighth of April, we're going to be doing a bigger campaign, making banners. Then the week after, we're going to be doing a bigger protest at Mr. Wynn's office. Same time, um, same place. Two hundred and forty Wellington Street, four to seven. Please come down. We've got an online petition. We've got a physical petition for people to sign, um, you know. And with the, the the government body that's doing the consultation, the consultation, they're saying, oh, people in Collingwood want this thing. We, we've done um, phone interviews with people. People haven't taken up the um, translator and we're like, how how is that possible when most people aren't Anglo-Celtic on their state? English isn't the first language. So who who have they called? And who who why do they think people haven't don't have a need to this service when obviously they do? So if people can come out um today, we'll be there today playing music, having Make you know really activating that space and making some making some noise. So it would be amazing if people could come down and um, show their support for Collingwood, the housing estate, and you know out your neighbours, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, um, Josh. And um, I think this is um, this is I think um, we we like to extend all our solidarity to um, to your kind of campaign, uh, especially since yet yeah, it is um, within <laughs> it is in within the realm of where FreeCR is positioned right now because yeah, we are in Collingwood. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we definitely hope to um, actively promote um, your your campaign and any sort of upcoming actions um, that you have coming up. Uh, in fact, and for our um, when we upload this um, in in the form of a podcast, we will um, attach a link. 
link to um to the petition for um for our listeners. So yeah, thank you very much, Joshua, and yeah, all the best with your um with your campaigning efforts. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Jacob. thanks, Joshua. Thank you. All right, we will just um um we'll just speaking to Joshua and Therese um about the um about the the campaign to stop um the sell um the sell offs of um public housing land um in Collingwood where basically you know the land is essentially being used to build more kind of affordable kind of uh, apartments at the expense of green space and amenities for the residents. All right, um you're listening to. Green Left Radio, and um, I'll just go. I'll just go into announcement, and we'll go into the activist calendar shortly. You are listening to Green Left Radio. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. And the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. So the first event I want to kind of highlight is um, the Global Strike for Climate, um, People Not Profit, um, which is going to be happening at 12 noon at the old Treasury Building in Spring Street in the city uh, today. And, um, yeah, I hope... Um, I think in the light of, um, you know, the, the extreme floods that, are that, um, the impacts of the floods in Northern New South Wales and 
Queensland. I think this will be an important kind of protest uh, to get behind, and I think there is going to be a need to build a stronger climate movement. And the next event is on... Actually, on Saturday, March the 26th, there is going to actually be a protest organised by the Myanmar community. Um, It's going to be happening at one o'clock. It's basically about bringing back, um, yeah, bringing attention to the ongoing struggle against the military dictatorship. In fact, that is actually something that Green Left Radio has not been able to cover uh, for a while. So I think we should, we need to be probably getting, um, give, um, our listeners a bit of an update on the situation that's, uh, that has been emerging in Myanmar. Because yeah, that just hasn't been in the news or mm-hmm. as yet. Yeah, we just haven't been able to hear as much about it as we have. And then on Sunday, March the 27th, there's going to be the West Papua Open Day. Um, that's going to be happening at 1 p.m. online and in person at 211 um, slash 838 Collins Street in Docklands. And then um, on Sunday, March the 27th, although I think everyone has seen this film at this point, but I just noticed there's a listing here for there's going to be a film screening of um, Parasite, um, the um, the um, at, at, at the Cinema Nova 3810 Ligon Street in Carlton. Uh, for those who probably haven't seen Parasite, Parasite is a film that's um, directed by uh, a, well, a well-known um, South Korean filmmaker. And the film is actually probably one of the, you know, it is a very good kind of depiction mm-hmm. of class conflict and class warfare. It's probably one of the more, yeah, one of the better sort of films that depicts um, the issue of class. And, yeah, without giving any sort of spoilers, I, yeah, I think I've just described it just as that and highly recommend um, you watch it if you haven't seen it already. I think it was one of the last movies I saw in the cinema before the pandemic, uh, before lockdowns and things. Mm. <laughs> yeah, must-see film. <clears throat> Um, and now the next, um, the other thing, um, the other event, actually, actually, the other event I want to highlight, actually, and this is just um, actually something I need to, I want to, uh, basically, the next kind of event I want to sort of highlight is, sorry, let me get the details here. Um, is this the rally at MITRE? Um, do you want to highlight that? Yeah, yeah. so we've, we've got, um, uh, the Refugee Action Collective have organised a rally at um it's called Free the 501s, No to Racist Character Tests, and it's going to be um, on Monday the 28th of March from 5.30 to 7 o'clock, and it's at 150 Camp Road in Broad Meadows. Um, and it's really um, the 501s are people being deported um, on so-called character grounds. So with the election only weeks away, the Liberals are trying to push this um, new law through to make it easier to deport non-citizens. And the it's the Migration Amendment um, strengthening the, the character test bill that may be debated um, soon in the Senate. So just watch out for that. Um, so we'll be gathering outside MITRE um, uh, where um, these people are detained. Um, and so, yeah, get, your, get, get down there if you can to protest this, um, this new law. Okay, I just found the details for another event that I wanted to kind of promote. Um, this is We're going to be actually interviewing the artists of this um, row shortly for our, our program, but I just want to make it a highlight that uh, on Sunday, March the 27th at 2pm, corner of Clarendine and Coventry uh, Street since um, South Melbourne, there's going to be a launch of the Core to Peace. Um, it's a dramatic um, sculpture by Soviet-born, Sikilda-based artist Nina Sanense. 
um, which is going to be unveiled at um, 2 p.m. and it'll be followed by and it's going to be followed by a number of choirs will perform and any anyone who's kind of welcome. So yeah, that's going to be at 2 p.m. corner of Clarendon and Coventry Streets in South Melbourne. Um, so yeah, um, that's probably one event um, we'll highlight, but we'll get the we'll advertise the details of that again when we actually interview the sculpture. Um, herself when um she's on our program shortly in about five minutes so yeah and then some of the other events i just want to highlight um this is i'm just getting the um just a number of events other events i want to highlight so <clears throat> on um on sorry on 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 thursday march the 31st there's going to be a film screening carbon the unauthorized book Biography. That's going to be at 7 p.m. at the Sun Theatre, 8 Ballarat Street, Yarraville. And then on Thursday, April the 7th, there's going to be an expedition, Art, War and Another Afghanistan. And that's going to be happening at 6.30 p.m. at the Wheeler Centre, 176 Lonsdale Street in the city. Um, and then from Friday 8th to Saturday, April the 16th, there's going to be a comedy show, Hellshide Dolly, um, the... Oh. <laughs> Okay, Dolly the the blow up love doll, um, and from Friday April the eighth to Saturday the April the sixteenth, um, and then on Sunday April the tenth, um, there's going to be um, a rally Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees um, at two p.m. Um, at the State Library, and then just one other event that's in regional Victoria. There's going to be a, um, a rally No Gas Terminal in Cario Bay at 11am at Little Mallop Street um, in Mall in Geelong. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at 5 a.m. on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. word about uh, public radio particularly 3CR the thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it so when you listen to it you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life and 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street Collingwood is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about if you'd like to uh, subscribe the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck. Free. 
3CR's Trans Day of Audibility is airing seven hours of trans and gender-diverse radio in the lead-up to the 2022 Trans Day of Visibility. Tune in on Sunday the 27th of March between 12 noon and 7pm to hear trans and gender-diverse voices bring the noise to the Western gender binary. We'll be bringing you shows covering art, culture, politics and everyday transgender lives towards a transgender day of audibility. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au slash transday of audibility 2022. Uh, all right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and um, we are very happy to have our third and final interview for the program. Um, we are going to we have Nina Sandanese on the line here, um, who is a Melbourne-based artist with a Bachelor of Fine Arts Honours from the Victorian College of the Arts. Uh, Sandanese was born in Georgia, former USSR, in 1976 and immigrated to Australia in 1996. And um, her work kind of encompasses, you know, a range of mediums and grounded in personal experience, um, connecting, you know, immediate critical, social, economic um, and political developments with pertinent um, major historic events. So good morning, Nina. Good morning, Jake. Okay, so you have produced a, a sculpture that... Um, replicates a World War II-era Soviet monument. In fact, we've already advertised um, the, the exhibition for the program, but we can advertise it also again uh, as we interview you. And it's going to be going on, on a show in the streets of Melbourne. I guess, what can you tell us about it? And I guess, how have, you know, recent events, um, you know, such, because it is contextualised in, in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, have influenced it? Yes, thank you so much. Uh, it is a uh, sculpture-based, uh, on or inspired by a Soviet um, monument uh, which was uh, standing there from 1948 uh, and it was titled Call to Peace and exactly this title uh, drew me to the sculpture and I started working on it in November uh, developing public art um, for City of, uh, Port, uh, City of Port Phillip. Um, so the sculpture is already in place uh, on the corner of Coventry and Clarendon Street in Port Melbourne. Um, so I made sort of a replica, my own interpretation of this sculpture. Um, and uh, it is a woman, uh, it represents a woman with open arms who windswept and sort of uh, open mouth and she's calling for peace. I guess it, in my mind, it is a woman who came out of the battlefield, uh, maybe a mother, uh, maybe a daughter, and she's um, really concerned. I think there is rage of emotions on her face, from from rage and despair to some hope and concern. Um, look, I, when I started working on this project with the city of Port Phillip, I, I had different ideas in mind. Of course, I was thinking about peace in terms of how our society is quite polarized these days, and um, I had no idea that it would coincide, the release of the sculpture would coincide with the actual war, which is extremely disturbing. And um, it has really changed the nature of the project. Um, I designed it originally um, as a place of a, a live monument, as a place of gathering for performances, uh, for workshops, for poetry readings, for dances and music. And 
it, it was going to have all these aspects in, in some limited way, but now uh, that we have the actual war happening, um, some people reached out and they wanted to come forward and participate. Uh, so the board will meet the cafe. They reached out first and they, they bring in choirs, community choirs, and uh, in a way it will be uh, for the first time uh, this uh, choir will be coming out and reclaiming public spaces and singing on the street, uh, I think, since COVID. Um, so it's, 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 it's sort of become an opportunity for the community to come together and to be together at this really difficult time uh, and do something positive and creative, uh, express themselves, and anybody is welcome. Uh, I have a children's ensemble uh, coming to play. I have non-professional um, performance musicians coming to express. Uh, I guess they just want to express their concern, but also love and care for humanity through their artistic means. So the sculpture is sort of a backdrop, a prop, and it does look a little bit like that because um, uh, my original clay sculpture, the replica that I made, was enlarged for, for this monument into this polystyrene big sculpt monument. And um, she's made from, uh, you can see it's polystyrene, so I'm not hiding that it's not a real monument uh, from bronze or anything like that. It looks a bit like marble, maybe, being really white, uh, but it's also quite sort of fake looking and it stands on the scaffolding structure. So the scaffolding structure is there kind of to um, have this conversation about the temporality or reference that temporality of monuments and that these are temporary monument there and around the monument uh, I even sort of constructed a table and chairs so it really becomes, the monument really becomes a life space of gathering and conversations and I think it's something we seem to be needing now and uh, so we're going to have a big opening on 27th where choirs are coming to sing together, hopefully we will all sing together at 2 o'clock, we're gathering there. Um, and then uh, from the 1st of April, every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, between 4 and 6, uh, everyone is welcome to put their name down um, on the website, calltopeace.net, and to sign up to do anything creative there they would like. Um, there is a sign-up sheet on, uh, sheet on there, uh, a form on their website, uh, and they can also look up and see who is performing, who put their name down and who is doing something there and go and see them. Mm. Um, simultaneously, it's a place that I, the sculpture works like a wishing tree. So I sort of, uh, I put uh, their ribbons and textures and pins and people started writing down kind of, um, in a way, their wishes, their prayers uh, for peace and um, attaching it to the monument. Um, so anybody can come and participate and do something even in that way, like a wishing, uh, making a wish. And, uh, you know, all we can do at the moment is just really hope and pray and wish in a way. Um, and just doing this little physical positive things like performances and just being together, supporting each other. Mm. 
Well, um, thank you very much. And I guess, um, Nina, um, you, you've probably, you've actually answered some of the other questions that we'll probably get to ask a bit, um, that we'll get to go ask following the question, the first kind of question asked. So I won't go into that. Um, and I guess, but some of what you guess you had say has kind of brought up some new questions. And I guess I'm kind of interested in hearing, you know, um, given your, I, I guess I want to hear how, for you, like a more personal question, I guess, how has your own sort of lived experience, you know, especially um, as someone who did grow up uh, in, in, you know, someone who was born in Georgia uh, when it was formerly under the, the Soviet rule? And, yeah, what can you tell us about how some of your lived experience has influenced, I guess, the production of your work? Uh, well, uh, hugely, my, my work is very, uh, while it uh, seems to be talking about big political events, it's always from my personal experience and perspectives. I don't talk about things I haven't lived through, so it's and uh, hopefully that work seems to correspond with the current times. So it's a, it's a historic work and then kind of we can use now to look at things and, um, and that's what I'm doing. And I guess my personal experience growing up in Soviet you know, in communism, and now as an adult since I was 21 living in capitalism, you know, I, I guess I, and seeing the fall down of the communism, I think I, it's a, it's a rich experience of li- living through these both systems. And, um, I actually, I personally, growing up in the 80s in Soviet Union, I don't have uh, traumatic memories whatsoever. I have good memories of Soviet Union. It was a place of, Thriving arts, and uh, not that I'm a supporter of communism at all, but you know, as a child, I was, you know, <laughs> really a child. And, uh, we were always aware of, you know, the limited liberties and that we couldn't speak out and things like that. On the other level, things were working in terms of education and arts was really, you know, um, were well, well funded and supported. I mean, there was also, <laughs> you couldn't uh, freely express yourself, but yeah. Uh, I think that the most traumatic uh, event was the fall down for me of the Soviet Union in terms of the crisis that it brought for people and the, the civil war that followed. It was very kind of, um, very painful uh, sort of experience for all people. The, and then for decades, probably, the, uh, definitely 90s, there was civil wars and unrest, and um, definitely in Georgia, uh, was incredibly impoverishment um, and uh, real struggle, so uh, times of instability. So uh, I think uh, these are maybe the sort of the republics, the ex-republics, they just kind of came out on in you know, uh, 2010, I was back and they started to sort of thrive again a little bit. It took a long time to recover uh, from the change uh, for all the ex-republics and, and Russia included. Hmm. Well, that's, um, that's a very informative, Nina. And I think actually, you know, that kind of story you've kind of given, how you've kind of described it, I think, you know, um, you know, I hope for our listeners, they've also might be similarly excited because, you know, for me, for someone who's actually been, who is actually planning on going to your expedition on Sunday, I think some of the thing, the insights you've sort of given there have actually made me more enthusiastic about um, coming along. So I guess in terms of that, because we're, I'm running a bit out of time because we've got to finish our program in probably around 10 minutes, I guess for our listeners, um, 
you want, I want to hear if you want to make any final comments, but also give you an opportunity to kind of re-advertise um, the details um, for the expedition and or and yeah, and any subsequent sort of dates that might be, then it might be there might be an event happening around it. Yes. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, so the call to peace installation is already standing there on the corner of Coventry and Clarendon Street in South Melbourne, and I invite everyone to come. Uh, any time, but also to an opening event with many choirs singing, organized by the board. That will be on Sunday, 2 p.m., this Sunday. And afterwards, I invite people to come and look up uh, or just rock up and enjoy performances on, from the 1st of April, every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, between 4 and 6. Hopefully, somebody will be doing something, and you can go to calltopeace.net and see on the booking form who has signed up to do something and also invite improvised kind of performances uh, and workshops, anything. Um, I, I, I just, I just hope, uh, I just, I'm just hoping that the, this, this work uh, will just help us to be together and um, just be on our own level in our, our society. We're so far, we're so remote from, but we, you know, the, 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 we have our own sort of struggles with peace maybe as well as a society. Um, but definitely we're just so incredibly concerned with what's happening in Europe and affects everyone. I think uh, we need a place uh, of peace and support and I, I, a lot of people don't go to places of worship anymore and I think we maybe at this time need a place together um, in, in, you know, instead of places of worship that you would uh, be able to hear some music and just be in a supportive environment or just meet up um, with friends and sort of pray and uh, focus on uh, thoughts about peace. And I think that sort of environment that um, I hope uh, will, will be forming. And it's really a, sort of a grassroots monument now. And the way I just set up the stage for uh community to take over and uh, do their thing there, hopefully. Um, so I do invite everyone, and there's a lot of information about um, the origins of this monument and why. So I like people. Um, a lot of my work is based on rich stories um, and uh, the background stories of why and how the sculpture was created, and I've written about it on, the, on that website. Uh, so I think... I'd like people to read and make, uh, you know, make it a point of conversation. Uh, it's a conversation about monuments as well. Do we need monuments? Uh, so referencing the Soviet Union, the monument that represented a horrific regime, I brought it back to life. Do we, is it useful now to look at it? You know, that's one conversation. And then, of course, the conversation about how we can restore peace in the world you know, and how we can be together as a community. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of families and friends have, you know, have been separate, separated during COVID because of their divisive opinions um, politically. So there are so many levels um, that that uh, 
sort of, I'm hoping that this place, uh, the Call to Peace site, this sculpture, will bring to kind of for us to rethink. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, um, Nina. Um, and yeah, I very, I, I look forward to, um, to your, um, to seeing your monument later, um, later this weekend. And yeah, and I think, I think you look, it sounds like you've done a really, um, fantastic job. And I also want to also give, uh, also a bit of appreciation. I really also like how, you know, you've also tried to use this sort of monument as a way of also bringing people kind of together and also creating, you know, public, a kind of almost like a public space for, people to be able to gather and connect and relate to because I think that is something that is very much important especially in terms of like you know the post kind of world you know the pandemic sort of world we're sort of living in right now after being so in so long for um, lockdown so yeah I'd like to thank you very much Nina for being our program and I yeah wish you all the best success with this. Thank you Jacob for having me all the best. All right, you're just listening to um, Nina Sanandes, um, who is a Melbourne-based art, um, Melbourne-based artist who is just recently um, who's just recently produced a sculpture that replicates a World War II um, era Soviet monument, and it's and you can actually get um, you can actually see it on um, in the corner of. Uh, Clarendine and Conferentry Street in South Melbourne. Um, but yeah, when I upload the podcast for this, I will basically attach all the details, um, for this and, and yeah, it will be on and, um, so, um, list, our listeners can, um, check it out. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Hi. I'm Jacob from a Friday Rave and I'm also on FreeCR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and in doing so remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with work and bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 94198377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. Everybody Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, 855 AM. 
Anyway, we're getting into um, the end of our program. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, I'd like to make another reminder that um, if you're listening and are free today to get down to the climate strike, which is going to be happening at 12pm at the Treasury Gardens. Um, and again, we'd like to also extend our <laughs> thanks to all the FreeCR volunteers and um, and the FreeCR team for um, help um, helping support Green Left Radio, especially it's great to be back on the air after being yeah. taken out um, into in, uh, from COVID. Um, and, yeah, um, Chloe, you yeah, might have a few yeah, comments. Thanks there. for listening to us. Um, and please keep tuning in and, and to all the other wonderful programs on 3CR and keep being part of the station's ongoing commitment to fighting for a better world. All right. Thank you very much. You're listening to Green Left Radio and stay tuned for Earth Matters. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that.